Good morning, and uh, for those of you who, thank you, Rick. Always nice to have a couple people paying attention. Uh, for um, uh, for those of us who had misspent youths, you may find some resonance this morning. Uh, back around 1987, I purchased my first bass. No, it really was not all that great. I think I paid 220 bucks for it. It says single pickup. It's, you know, um, pretty warped, but Rob still likes to play it. Um, also around 1987, a uh, folk duo called the Indigo Girls came out with their first album. Now, um, some of you may have been into their stuff. Uh, some of you may not admit that. Um, but I kind of dug their stuff. What, what's this? Rob, what have you been doing to my bass? Um, and uh, when I was a freshman in college, they came and performed a concert. So my first interaction with any sort of musical royalty, and they were fairly a big deal at the time, was when they came to our little campus. And I got to interview them for the school radio station. I have on the back of my bass three stickers. The one is a bumper sticker for the radio station. Uh, we uh, put these out after we upgraded our transmitter to 440 watts, which is one-third the power of a good blow dryer. <clears throat> uh, this one below was my crew sticker that gave me backstage access. Uh, and then this, and this one is kind of satin finish, this sticker gave me after-show backstage access. And this is the one that the girls themselves signed for me in the, uh, in the room after when I did the interview. This was very exciting to me at the time. Although uh, I'm a little less enthusiastic about them these days, as you'll find out. I remember uh, having a bit of a rude awakening at this concert when I talked to one of my fellow students and fellow volunteers who was very enthusiastic to meet them because she wanted to share with them how meaningful one of their songs had been for her. Uh, one of their songs that this, in this song, which is called Strange Fire, has been ringing through my head all week as I've been thinking about our text. Uh, she said, and she was a religion major who had found this song to be especially uh, meaningful for her as she understood uh, her relationship with the kind of religion that she had grown up with. And uh, she found it to be a uh, powerful expression of rebellion against patriarchy in religion. And I said to her, oh, that's, well, that's an interesting way to interpret the song. And she said, no, it's not an interp interesting way to interpret the song. That's what the song's about which made a couple of things clear to me. One was that I had not been paying very much attention to this song. Uh, two, uh, that, you know, whatever you care to think about some things, some things, it's very clear what the author is intended to get across, and if you're not getting it, then that really is your problem. Uh, it's possible to read something and just not get it, and that may mean that you're insensitive. It may mean that you're stupid. It may mean you're not paying enough attention. It may mean that you just need to listen to people who get it better than you do. But either way, there is such a thing as what a text means that you can either understand or not. And it was also clear to me that there was no chance that I was ever going to get a date with this girl. 
Yeah. Yeah, no, yeah. So here we are in Leviticus. And for those of you who are new, we're going through the first five books of Moses this year. We're going through Torah, and we're right around the middle here. We've gone through Exodus, and in Exodus, if you remember, the second half of Exodus is all about what? Don't say Jesus. What's the second half? What? The tabernacle. second half of Exodus is all about the tabernacle. God saves his people out of slavery, out of bondage in Egypt. He brings them out into the desert, and he says, all right, I'm going to bring you into the promised land. I've got this turf all set for you. I've got the real estate picked out. You're going to move in there, and I'm going to give you my law, my Torah. I'm going to tell you how you live when you're there. I'm also going to tell you how you worship me when you're there. And in fact, you don't have to wait because we're going to start this right now. And he teaches the people how they're going to build this tabernacle, this place uh, where he is to be worshipped. And he gives them specific instructions for how it's to be constructed and what materials are to be used. We read that he gives, by the gift of his spirit, the abilities, special abilities, to people um, in the community to do the necessary craftsmanship, to do the artistic work involved in building this place for him to be worshipped. And then in the first several chapters of Leviticus, he lays out in great detail exactly how various sacrifices are to be brought before him. Talks about sacrifices of animals, sacrifices with grain, how you mix them together, which parts are retained by the priests to, for their support, which parts are uh, the worshiper is allowed to eat, which part get burned up completely. One thing I found interesting is basically in every case, the hide of the animal uh, goes to the priests. So the priests back in the day had some very, very nice leather jackets, which was an upside to being a priest. One of the downsides was you had a whole lot of restrictions about ritual purity that were even more severe for you than for everybody else. And you also didn't have any land of your own, as we're going to get to in numbers in a few weeks. But here we have in the beginning of Leviticus these clear and detailed and specific instructions as to how the service of the tabernacle is supposed to happen, how God is to be worshipped. And then in chapter 8, we have the ordination of Aaron and his sons. God designates Aaron, Moses' brother, uh, and his children to be the priests among the people. You have the Levites. They're set apart for the temple service. Then among the Levites, you have people specifically called to priesthood, to priestly service. And in chapter 8, we have in detail the process by which these people are being set apart. They're being consecrated for this particular service. And so you, you find that, that they, they bring particular sacrifices that God uh, tells Moses to put the particular, the, the special clothing that's been uh, been made, been designed for the high priest. He places all of these things on his brother Aaron. Moses takes the anointing oil. He anoints the tabernacle, everything in it, consecrates all that, and then he sprinkles some of the oil on the altar, and then he pours some of this altar on Aaron's, uh, some of this oil on Aaron's head, and he anoints him to consecrate him. And then he brings Aaron's sons forward. He put tunics on them, tied sashes around them, put headbands on them, just as Yahweh had commanded him. He brings this bull, presents that, this bull for the sin offering. Aaron and his sons lay their hand on that bull's head 
Moses slaughters the bull, takes some of the blood with his finger, put it on all the horns of the altar to purify the altar, pours the rest of it out at the base of the altar, and he consecrates it to make atonement for it. Did all the other things he's supposed to do with the burnt offerings, presents the ram for the burnt offerings. Again, Aaron and his sons lay their hands on its head. And then he uh, handles the blood and the fat and all the uh, elements of the offering as he's supposed to, burning them up. So uh, after he slaughters the, the other ram for the ordination, this is now for the specific consecration of Aaron and his sons, of the priests of Israel. Moses slaughters the ram, takes some of its blood, and puts it on the lobe of Aaron's right ear, on the thumb of his right hand, and on the big toe of his right foot. Same thing with his sons. And he sprinkles blood against the altar on all sides. From the basket of the bread made without yeast, which was before Yahweh took a cake of bread, took one of those unleavened pancakes we talked about last week, took a wafer, he put those on the fat portions on the right right thigh. All of them he put in the hands of Aaron and his sons and waved them before the Lord as a wave offering. Again, doing all the things that God had specifically commanded him to do. And you you, you get this in, in, in Torah a, a good bit, right? God tells everybody to do something, right? And then you read for several chapters, okay, and they did this and that and that and that, just as the Lord commanded. Same thing is going on here. So all the things that God has commanded Moses to do, he is doing. And then he says to Aaron and his son, So cook the meat at the entrance of the tent of meeting and eat it there with the bread from the basket of the ordination offering as I commanded, saying, Aaron and his sons are to eat it. And then burn up the rest of the meat and the bread. Don't leave the entrance to the tent of meeting for seven days until the days of your ordination are completed. So this is a seven-day process. And Aaron and his sons are right there, the entrance to the tent of meeting, being consecrated for holy service to Yahweh. Do not leave the entrance to the tent of meeting for seven days until the days of your ordination are completed, for your ordination will last seven days. What's been done today was commanded by Yahweh to make atonement for you. You're going to stay there day and night for seven days, do what Yahweh requires, so you will not die. For that is what I've been commanded. Guys, this is what God told me you had to do so that you wouldn't die. So Aaron and his sons naturally did everything that Yahweh commanded through Moses. And then on the eighth day, now we have these consecrated, ordained priests ready to begin their ministry. And again, think about this in terms of the family relationships here. You have Moses and his brother Aaron, and all of Aaron's sons, Moses' nephews. On the eighth day, Moses summoned Aaron and his sons and the elders of Israel. So they're all there too. He said to Aaron, take a bull calf for your sin offering and a ram for your burnt offering, both without defect, and present them before Yahweh. Then say to the Israelites, take a male goat for a sin offering, a calf and a lamb, both a year old and without defect for a burnt offering, an ox and a ram for a fellowship offering to sacrifice before Yahweh, together with a grain offering mixed with oil. For today, Yahweh will appear to you. This is going to be a big day. They took the things that Moses commanded to the front of the tent of meeting. The whole assembly came near and stood before Yahweh. And Moses says, this is what Yahweh has commanded you to do so that the glory of Yahweh may appear to you. And Moses says to his brother Aaron, all right, time to do it. This is incidentally something that you don't always catch. Um, whenever there's any sort of a service, 
you know, all of you out there maybe watching a wedding, you know, everything kind of looks picturesque and fine. In the front, you've got the pastor whispering to people to, you know, move over a little bit, stand straight, make sure you remember to do that, make sure you do that. Same thing, Moses is like, okay, Aaron, come to the altar and sacrifice, your turn now. Sacrifice your sin offering, your burnt offering, make atonement for yourself and the people. Sacrifice the offering that's for the people and make atonement for them as Yahweh commanded. So Aaron came to the altar and he slaughtered the calf as a sin offering for himself. His sons brought that blood to him and they, he dipped his finger into the blood and put it on the horns of the altar. The rest of the blood he poured out at the base of the altar. And on that altar he burnt the fat, the kidneys, the covering of the liver from the sin offering as Yahweh commanded Moses, the flesh and the hide. He burned up outside of the calf. Then he slaughtered the burnt offering. His sons handed him the blood. He sprinkled it against the altar at all sides. Handed him the burnt offering piece by piece, including the head. He burned them up on the altar. He washed the inner parts and the legs and burned them on top of the burnt offering on the altar. Aaron brought the offering for the people, took the goat, offered it as a sin offering like he did with the first one, brought the burnt offering, uh, offered that in the prescribed way, also brought the grain offering, took a handful of it, burnt it on the altar in addition to the morning's burnt offering. All the things we've been reading about, Aaron is doing just like he's supposed to do. Slaughtered the ox and the ram as a fellowship offering for the people. His sons, again, they're, they're standing right there. They're helping him out with this. They handed him the blood. He sprinkled it against the altar on all sides. Fat portions of the ox and the ram, the fat tail, layer of fat, kidneys, covering the liver, all those they laid on the breast. Aaron burned the fat on the altar, waved the breasts and the right thigh before Yahweh as a wave offering just like Moses had commanded. All this they're doing as God had commanded. Remember, just a few months ago, where were they? few months before this where were they they're they're in egypt they're slaves in egypt and now they're in the desert wearing the finest of clothes worshiping in the most beautiful of desert sanctuaries all made with the loot that god told them to plunder from the egyptians as deferred compensation for 400 years of slavery They are holy priests unto the one God of Israel, the Holy One, the one God of the universe. They are initiating this worship of the one true God, just as he has told them to do. This is a big deal. So after having made... All these sacrifices, Aaron lifted his hands toward the people and blessed them, having sacrificed the sin offering, the burnt offering, the fellowship offering. He stepped down, came down the altar, whether it was steps or a ramp. Sucker's four and a half feet high. You're going to have to get up there somehow. And then Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting. When they came out, they blessed the people, and the glory of Yahweh appeared to all the people. Fire came out from the presence of Yahweh, and consumed the burnt offering and the fat portions on the altar. When all the people saw it, they shouted for joy and fell face down. This is quite a scene. Think about what these people have been through in the last several months. They were slaves. They saw God bring these plagues upon the Egyptians, upon their oppressors. They saw God utterly destroy Pharaoh and his army. This is one of the world's superpowers at the time, one of the greatest military forces that had been assembled at the time. God completely puts them down. 
here they are, having received from God his word, having gotten Torah given to them on Sinai. And here, as they begin this worship of God as he has instructed them, this fire comes down from heaven. He already had fire on the altar. That was the whole point. Fire comes and burns everything up that's right there on the altar. That must have been pretty cool. But it also must have been scary as hell. Which is why the people shouted for joy and fell face down. Both of these are appropriate responses to God demonstrating his power and holiness, don't you think? They shouted for joy, and they fell face down. And so the princes of the Israelite priesthood, Nadab and Abihu, Aaron's sons, what do they do now? They take their censers, put fire in them, add incense, And they offered strange fire before Yahweh, contrary to his command. There's some dispute about what was strange about this fire. Some say that what was strange was that they took it from the wrong place. Some say what was strange is that they brought it to the wrong place. Some say they brought the wrong kind of incense. Some say they offered it in the wrong place. But regardless of exactly what the mechanism was of their offering of strange fire what happened fire came out from the presence of Yahweh and consumed them and they died before Yahweh Moses then said to Aaron you know bro this is what Yahweh spoke of when he said among those who approach me I will show myself holy in the sight of all the people I will be honored And Aaron remained silent. Moses summoned Mishael and Elzapan, sons of Aaron's uncle Uziel, said to them, Come here, carry your cousins outside the camp, away from the front of the sanctuary. So they came out and carried them, still in their tunics, outside the camp, as Moses ordered. If there's any doubt about the supernatural quality of the fire that consumed Nadav and Avihu, their tunics were not roasted up along with everything else. In fact, Rashi, one of the great Jewish commentators, he he speculates that fire came out of their nostrils and burned them up. So they got carried out. Moses said to Aaron and his sons, Eleazar and Ithamar, don't let your hair become unkempt. Don't tear your clothes or you'll die. And Yahweh will be angry with the whole community. Your relatives, all the house of Israel, they may mourn for those that Yahweh has destroyed by fire. But don't you leave the entrance to the tent of meeting, or you will die, for Yahweh's anointing oil is on you. So they did just as Moses said. Now this is hard, isn't it? I mean, for one thing, it's 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 kind of hard. Like you know, you bring the wrong fire in the wrong place, and God's going to smoke you. And after that, what does he say to 
their father and their brothers. These, they've just spent probably the most intense week of their lives being ordained for the priesthood and inaugurating this temple service. And then suddenly they're taken away and God says now you can't mourn for them you have to be completely silent they did but how harsh is that many commentators have speculated on what exactly it was that prompted Nadav and Avihu to do this Maybe there's a really good reason. Maybe, maybe they were trying to usurp Aaron's authority. Maybe they were figuring out how they could you know, push aside the old man and take his spot. Maybe, based on what comes right after this, where Yahweh says to Aaron, now make sure you guys don't, uh, don't drink wine or any other fermented drink whenever you go in the tent of meeting or you'll die. Maybe that was it. Maybe Nadav and Avihu had been knocking a few pints back as they were waiting for everything to finish. As they did that, suddenly something that was not a good idea seemed like a very good idea. Sometimes that happens. Maybe there's some children downstairs that came as a result of that kind of thinking. Maybe they decided that they were going to improvise. That what God had told them in terms of the way that he was to be worshipped they found to be a little boring or maybe a little cramped. Maybe they wanted to do their own thing a little bit. But then there are the commentators who look at this and say, well, really, we shouldn't be trying to justify what God did. Maybe we shouldn't be trying to figure out what it is that Nadav and Avihu did. Maybe we should recognize just how unjust a thing it is that God did. You get kind of a hint of this thinking, actually, in what happens in a fairly similar incident in Second uh, Samuel. You may remember this, where David is uh, finally destroyed Saul and his armies, and he has taken the city of God. He's taken uh, Jerusalem, Jebus at the time, defeated the Philistines, and then in chapter 6, he's rescued the ark from his enemies. He's about to bring this back up to Jerusalem. So he brought together out of Israel chosen men, 30,000 of them. They all sent out from Baalah of Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of Yahweh, of hosts, who's enthroned between the cherubim that are on the ark. This was a good idea, by the way. This was all good. The, David wanted to bring the ark from where it had been stolen by the enemies and bring it into this city where he was going to establish his center of worship and of government of God's people. And so they set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Now, what potential problem could there be here? Anybody know? Yes, Tim? It could fall off the new car. Yeah, and whether the car's new or old, if you've, if you've ever been over there, it's some pretty impressively rocky terrain. Uh, but what could be the other problem? Anybody remember? If you remember about what, what God said in Exodus about the ark? Yeah. 
Well, not just don't touch it. How do you say you're supposed to move it around? With poles. Yeah, God said he, he designed it with poles. He said, look, put little loops on either side. You, gotta, you know, you put poles through it and you carry it around. Did God say put it on a cart? No. Well, they put it on a cart. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart with the Ark of God on it. Ahio was walking in front. And David and the whole house of Israel were celebrating with all their might before Yahweh, with songs, with harps, lyres, tambourines, sistrums, and cymbals. This is a picturesque scene, except when they came to the threshing floor of Nakon, Uzzah reached out and he took hold of the Ark of God because the oxen stumbled. Good instinct, right? Oxes stumbled. He, you know, it'd be kind of awkward if the ark fell down. He puts his hand out to keep it from falling over. And what happens? <laughs> Yahweh's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore, God struck him down, and he died there beside the ark of God. Well, David was angry because of Yahweh's wrath, because Yahweh's wrath had broken out against Uzzah, and to this day. The name is called Perez Uzzah, which is outbreak against Uzzah. So Dave was a little annoyed about this. He had to, happened to like the guy, thought he was well-intentioned. But <laughs> what does David do next? David was afraid of Yahweh that day. <laughs> and said, how can the ark of Yahweh ever come to me? In other words, shoot, this thing's dynamite. This thing's radioactive. I can't bring this into my house. So he actually parks it in another guy's house for three months sort to see if God's maybe he's going to settle down. So, And it's one thing to be angry, to be, you know, I'm sure Aaron was plenty angry. But it's another thing to do what some other commentators do, which is to declare God to be unjust. And to say what we're supposed to take from this story is we're supposed to recognize just what an unjust thing God did and how awful he is to have smitten Nadav and Avihu. That is the kind of approach taken in that song, Strange Fire, that's been banging around my head all week. This is the beginning, and, and uh, Amy Ray, one of the two Indigo Girls, is the one who wrote this. My, my other contact with royalty here was that uh, Emily Saliers, the other Indigo Girl, was... Uh, had my mom for a fourth grade teacher back in elementary school. Um, but uh, Amy Ray says, I come to you with strange fire. I make an offering of love. The incense of my be soul is burned by the fire in my blood. I come with a softer answer to the questions that lie in your path. I want to harbor you from the anger, find a refuge from the wrath. And here is, we're going to find out she's addressing this to those patriarchal guardians of traditional religion. But she's saying, you know what? I look at this story and I want to identify with Nadav and Abihu. She says, I kind of like the idea of coming with strange fire. I'm going to bring an offering of love. I'm going to have the fire of my blood burn the incense of my soul. This is what I want to offer. This is what I'm going to offer. And this is a message, she says. This is a message of love. 
This is a love that moves from the inside out. Love that never grows tired. I'm coming to you with strange fire. Here's her indictment. Mercenaries of the shrine, now who are you to speak for God? With haughty eyes and lying tongues, hands that shed innocent blood. Now who delivered you the power to interpret Calvary? You gamble away our freedom to gain your own authority. This is her objection to those who have developed, who have instituted, who have led a religious expression that she does not find acceptable to her. And plenty of good reasons, by the way, to object. I think you know it's fairly safe to say that there have been some people who have been haughty and have had lying tongues and have shed some innocent blood. If you read anything about the history of the church pretty much anywhere at any time, this stuff happens. But her question there, who delivered you the power to interpret Calvary? Basically is one of those rhetorical questions that isn't designed for an answer. Because if the answer is, well, God did, then that kind of closes the conversation. No, basically she's saying, how come you get to interpret it and I don't? How come you get to decide what kind of offerings get brought and I don't? I want to bring strange fire. I want to bring things the way I want to. I want to find another state of mind. You know, it's time we all learn to grab hold. Strange fire burns with the motion of love. How many times have you heard love used as a trump card? How many times have you heard somebody say, well, I think love demands it, or I was simply following my heart? What did Woody Allen say about wanting to marry his adopted daughter? The heart has its reasons. We get this way back in Genesis when Eve is tempted by the serpent. She saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food was pleasing to the eye, and it was also desirable for gaining wisdom. So she took some and she ate it. Every time temptation comes to us, it comes to us with a shiny package, doesn't it? She saw it was good for food. Temptation usually involves something that seems like it's going to be productive or useful. It's not just pleasing to the eye, although it sure is not just appealing or attractive, but something useful. And and then usually we've got some sort of lofty transcendent value that we're going to uphold, right? Oh, she saw that it was desirable for gaining wisdom. This is the nicer-than-God syndrome. This is the attitude that says, you know, God must just not have really figured it out when he told us not to do that. Because this seems like what wisdom or justice or love demands. 
But love is no excuse for disobedience, for sin. In fact, it's quite often precisely the problem. We read in Psalm 36, starting in verse 1, An oracle is in my, in my heart concerning the sinfulness of the wicked. There's no fear of God before his eyes. <clears throat> For in his own eyes he flatters himself too much to detect, let alone to hate his sin. Say that again, because I just choked on it. There's no fear of God before his eyes. For in his own eyes he flatters himself too much to detect, let alone to hate his sin. Love, or as I should say with scare quotes, love is the kind of word that you can smuggle all kinds of baggage into, isn't it? And really, if you're claiming that love is a justification, or love is a commandment for what you are trying to do, that somehow, someplace, God has said you ought not to do, really you're trying to close the conversation, aren't you? Try and say, well, I have found the most transcendent of the values. I have got the trump card. This love is ultimately what is going to win. But what kind of love is that? Well, Whitney Houston loved this, I'm sure. When you learn to love yourself, You'll dissolve all the stones that are cast. Now you'll learn to burn the icing sky, to melt the waxen mask. He said, to have the gift of true release, this is a peace that will take you higher. I come to you with my offering. I bring you strange fire. There we go again. It's a peace that will take you higher. Higher than what? Presumably higher than what God has revealed, right? In order to make this work, you have to love yourself. Oftentimes in encountering a different passage like this or a different doctrine, you find people asking questions like, what kind of God would do that? What kind of God would strike down a guy just because he tried to keep his ark from falling off the cart? What kind of God would strike down Moses' sons because they brought incense in the way they kind of felt like bringing it. I mean, really, what kind of God would do that? Again, that's a rhetorical question. And it's a rhetorical question because people don't usually like the answer because if the answer is, well, the one true God of Israel who's revealed himself in Torah and in Jesus and through his spirit. So that's the answer, yes, that kind of God. In fact, incidentally, the, the only option you have, right? You have people who say, well, I couldn't worship a God who... Da, 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 da. Well, then you're going to have to make one up. Because if the one true God that there is has said, this is what I'm like, this is what I do, this is what it means to be holy, this is what it means to be acceptable to me, this is what I am about If you don't feel like you can worship that God, then you're going to have to come up with one. This is known as idolatry. 
Usually, by the way, you may have noticed this, the gods that you make up on your own tend to look a lot like yourself on a good day. our house church we've been reading in 1 Corinthians came this week to the part where Paul is talking about chapter 11 he's talking about the the way that they're having their worship services Paul is deeply deeply unimpressed in fact he says you know (laughs) frankly your meetings do more harm than good right like I'd rather you go and watch Survivor then go to church is basically what I'm saying because, you know, when you come together as a church, you've got all these divisions among you. When you think you're coming together for the Lord's Supper, you think you're having communion. It's not the Lord's Supper that you eat because you've got basically the rich people having the, the, their slaves who are also believers. They're waiting on them and there's nothing left for them. The rich people are, are feasting and getting drunk. And then, you know, they want God to, to put a big gold star on that because they've been celebrating this festal meal. Paul's like, are you kidding? You want me to praise you for this? Come on. No. We flatter ourselves too much to detect, to notice, let alone to despise our own sin. Same thing happened in Israel, when the prophet said, you know, just so we're clear, God's really not impressed with all these burnt offerings. Okay, I mean, maybe you're offering them according to the precise way he said to, but you're just trying to check off a box. And at the same time as you're doing all that stuff, you're also oppressing the poor. And you're violating Torah in all sorts of ways. So just because you're getting this one part of it right doesn't mean that, that you're clear with God. Jesus says the same thing when he's disputing with the Pharisees, right? He's like, you guys, man, you tithe, you, you go in your spice cabinet and you tithe that stuff. You know, you're measuring everything out. And he says, you strain out a gnat and you swallow a camel. Again, this is a place where Jesus should not be taken literally. He says, you guys, you know, you're, you're all about obeying the tiny little particulars, but you've missed the big picture. That doesn't mean, Jesus says, that doesn't mean you shouldn't, care about the particulars that's good but you're missing the point of the exercise now for us as people who follow jesus people who live by the spirit we do not follow the strictures of the mosaic code we do not have burnt offerings and fellowship offerings and sin offerings we have to sacrifice we get to take some of those portions that were burned up and make delicious dishes of them for people that we care about who just had children. But we are still called, as the writer of Hebrews says, to worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. And if you've been paying any attention in the last several weeks as we've talked about what worship is. And if you pay attention to the kind of thing Paul says in places like Romans 12, it talks about giving our lives as acceptable acts of worship. All of our lives are to be presented to God acceptably with reverence and awe. 
That goes not just for an hour on Sunday morning when we struggle to stay awake, but for the songs that we sing, the money that we give, the service that we render to people who need it. Those for the work that we do, those for the way that we treat our families, those for the ideas that we wrestle with in our heads, those for the attitude we have toward what God has revealed to us through his word, by his spirit, through his people. See to it, the writer of Hebrews says, that you do not refuse him who speaks. See, they didn't escape when they refused him who warned them on earth. How much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? At that time, his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised, yet once a little while I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Will you pray with me? Lord, we confess that it is very easy for us to be irreverent, to be dismissive. It is easy for us to fail to respect your holiness. Lord, let us never take you lightly. Let us never get in a position where you have to impress upon us so dramatically as you have in these places we've seen today in Scripture the consequences of taking you lightly. Lord, give us the grace to worship you joyfully and with appropriate holy fear name of the one who enables us to do that, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.